This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. This is Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Solomon prayed for wisdom, and the Lord granted his request. Oh, how we need more Solomons in our day. At least the early Solomon before all the foreign wives. Uh, Brett McCracken is here to help us find wisdom with his new book, The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World, published by Crossway. Brett works as Director of Communications and Senior Editor for Arts and Culture with the Gospel Coalition. You may also know him, in addition to many, many, many excellent essays for the Gospel Coalition, from his excellent earlier books, especially Uncomfortable a book that I very strongly recommend, only seems to get better with time. The Wisdom Pyramid is like the food pyramid, only for the health of our souls when it comes to our media diet. I have a hard time thinking of anything more urgently needed for the church than men and women saturated in scripture, rooted in their local church, and amazed by the wonder of God's creation. This is the lean protein we need in the world pushing Skittles and Doritos. Brett joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss social media, books we disagree with, what makes the internet different, and more. Brett, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Colin. Great to be here. Uh, Brett, what makes the internet different from earlier media? I mean, there's a lot of differences there, but I think one of the big ones that comes to mind is just the sheer scope of it and the size and the, the way that it has just exploded infinitely the amount of information and data and stimulation that is possible. So the, the horizons of, of um, media possibility that are opened with the internet, I think is just um, quantitatively different than any other previous media form, you know, very different. And it's that glut, it's that excess um, that is a huge part of the problem that we're facing, I think, when it comes to navigating the internet is there's just too much of it. I mean, among other things, the size of it and the the infinite space on the internet allows any sort of niche community to flourish and create their own little bubble of reality online. And you can, you know, whatever it is you believe, whatever you want to believe, the internet has space for you and for people like you, that you can find your corner of the internet where your truth, quote unquote, your truth is is alive and well. So, I mean, that's one of the pressing issues that I think we're seeing, in, you know, day to day in the headlines and what what's happening in our world. But there's a lot of other problems, I think, as well. But I was meeting recently with a group from my church trying to talk through, I guess what I'm just calling digital discipleship. Um, I don't think I made that up, but I mean, that's just the best thing I can use to describe it. And I was looking back on the last number of decades of American history and thinking about the post-war period and the obsession with 
new amenities and gadgets that would be able to uh, simplify our lives and, and simplify tasks, thinking about refrigerators and dishwashers and microwaves and all that kind of stuff. And uh, that lasts for a good bit of time, especially the 50s and 60s. And, and as you head toward the 90s, you start to get into the information age, and that seems to come with the internet, but you and I have been around long enough to remember all those modem sounds, and we actually had to sit down and do that. Um, but I'd say the information age um, was an apt term for probably the 1990s through the 2000s. But would you agree, you don't have to, that we've actually transitioned out of the information age into the entertainment age? Because it seems like, yes, there is a pursuit of information on the internet. We know that. That's kind of a given, just like microwaves are still a given. But it seems like almost all push now is toward just toward entertainment, the amazing proliferation of how much sports you can watch now it's almost like you can't have a sporting event without it being broadcast anymore to of course uh online gaming and everything else would you agree with that and if so was there a time when you could tell when that transition happened yeah no i think that's that's probably correct you know it maybe i would say it's a merging of information and entertainment a kind of infotainment age and in that way i think neil postman really was so prophetic with um, what he was writing about in the 80s with amusing ourselves to death and kind of um, foreshadowing the melding together in the indistinguishable nature of information and entertainment. And I think what's changed and what really um, you're getting at is the, the way that digital capitalism works is that it's all about um, commandeering our attention as much as possible, right? Money is made to the extent that eyeballs are on platforms, devices, you know, apps. And how do you get eyeballs and how do you get people to be there constantly? Well, it has to be entertaining. It has to be, it can't just merely be informative in an efficient way, giving people what they are looking for and need. It has to be addictive. It has to be something that lures you in, kind of beckons you as you're <laughs> walking along the path, so to speak, to use a metaphor from Proverbs. It's those, those voices from on the periphery of the path beckoning you like, come look at what I have, come eat my food, come hang out with me. Uh, the algorithms are the lady folly of our day in that sense. They're, they're beckoning us from any sort of intentional direction we're going and, and saying, no, you can come spend time with me right now. And so, we find ourselves in this place where we're literally spending all of our free time, all of our excess moment scrolling, not with anything in mind necessarily that we have to <laughs> discover or that we need. It's just our, our habit that we're conditioned to. So yeah, I think it's, it's the nature of digital capitalism that it, it feeds on, it profits from our attention. That's the commodity of our age, attention. There's an episode of Seinfeld where Jerry and George are pitching their TV show to the NBC executives. And it's a show about nothing. And, you know, it's obviously a show within a show on Seinfeld. And at one point, they, they're talking to the executive, and he says, why would anybody watch this? And do you remember what the response was? The response from George was, because it's on TV. <laughs> the executive says, no, not, not, not until I say so. But there was a sense in which, okay, if it's on TV, well, then it's 
it's worth watching. Somebody's decided, or everyone's deciding, I guess. It's your own little customized. There's no executive sitting somewhere deciding what goes there. And the closest is what you said, the algorithm. But I mean, do the algorithm developers even truly understand what they're doing? I, I don't even know. Does it have a mind of its own? It's impossible to tell, but there's no, I mean, how do you find wisdom at a time when there's nothing but voices? That was the dilemma. That's the, that's the issue that led me to write this book is I think that the passive posture is so problematic and it's, it makes us so vulnerable to just that conditioned Pavlovian response of literally pulling out my phone when I have 30 seconds to kill at a stop sign and driving, like pulling out my phone and scrolling when I'm waiting in line at Starbucks to get a coffee. Like we all do that and we don't know why. And it's, there's nothing intentional about it, but that's why we're so messed up. That's why there's so much cultural rot and sickness is because we're just letting ourselves be pulled every which way by whatever's there, right? Whatever's on right now, on your feed, on, on, on your screen, everything boils down to intention. I find like (laughs) with most flourishing, with most wisdom, like you really can't be passive. You need to be intentional about what, where you're looking, what you're listening to, what you're filling your heart and your mind with and uh, what's feeding your soul to reference the subtitle of the book. So, yeah, so this book in, in my kind of rubric of, of a suggested solution is really just that. It's, it's how do we be, be more intentional about the sources that we're lending our attention to. If attention is, is what these algorithms are after, then if we're passive about it, we're going to be in trouble. We're just going to be led in all sorts of problematic directions. But if we're careful with guarding our attention and guarding that precious real estate of our our mind space and our, our heart, which is always being formed, you know, every, every moment of every day we're being formed in some direction or another. And a lot of it has to do with what comes into us, the inputs that come into us that form us. So unless you're intentional about that and careful and discerning about that, you're going to be, you're going to end up being formed in, in really unhealthy directions. And I think we're seeing, we're seeing that in our, in our own lives and, people that we see on social media every day that we're just like shaking our heads. Like, what are you saying? How, how did it come to, <laughs> to this? You know, I think pastors this year more than most years are probably spending a lot of time just in grief, looking at how people in their congregations have been malformed by toxic inputs and, and just seeing what it leads to with crazy conspiracy theories that they're believing in and sharing and perpetuating and crazy partisanship that comes out in really ugly ways. Um, it all boils down to the inputs that are coming into these people's minds and hearts. And so to come back to the idea of digital discipleship, man, that that's one of the urgent priorities for pastors and churches is figuring out how to do that well. Speaking of inputs, you have been... Um... Uh, some masochist decided to assign you the responsibilities of being up close and personal with TGC social media. <laughs> what has that experience taught you over the years, Brett? Oh, man, blocked out a lot of it. You need a better boss, I think, is what it probably <laughs> taught you. Honestly, like this book probably wouldn't have been written had I not had that up close and personal experience. I mean, you can you can be aware of the toxic nature of this stuff to some extent just by living in today's world, but when you work in our profession, 
you know, digital journalism, you know, writing, editing for the internet, seeing um, social media uh, on a daily basis, very up close and personal. You see the negative ways that Christians have been formed and the degrading of discourse and everything from whataboutism to various other logical fallacies that come out constantly all the time on social media to just a, a blatant reversal of the wisdom of James to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Christians every day are totally reversing that <laughs> and being quick to speak, slow to listen, and quick to become angry. So, yeah, I, I mean, I see that all the time. I mean, just one glance at the comment section on a TGC article on any given day is just an exercise of grief and confusion. I told my wife the other day, Brett, that I think you and I and some of our colleagues have are almost like a patient zero with this stuff. We are so immersed in it because it is our everyday. This is not an escape. This is our job. Mm -hmm. And I think it's pretty rapidly accelerated the problems for us. What I said, Brett, is I think our work on social media is like radiation exposure. Yeah. We like we're working in a nuclear facility and we're being constantly exposed to it. And it's trying to figure out how do you rotate people or cycle people through or give some kind of protective gear when possible. You get times when you feel like as if it's been radiation poisoning <laughs> on you. And so that's that's I, I wonder I didn't realize that this book had come out of that experience, but I can completely sympathize by saying I feel as though I've had to work through these issues over the years before we even got to this point, because I was exposed to so much radiation early on that I don't know how I could survive without learning some survival tactics, ultimately of just getting to a place where I could find wisdom in Christ and not expect to get it from the world. Yeah. I mean, I think most books to some extent are written for yourself. Um, and, yeah. and that's definitely the case for this one. For me, I definitely wrote it from, from my own struggle. You know, like you're saying, when you're in, in the digital space professionally, and it's just something unavoidable, you do have to go in with a hazmat suit. Otherwise you're going to be compromised and you're going to be, you're going to become sickly. And there have been moments where I've seen myself and seen my soul just start to like become unhealthy by the exposure that I necessarily have to have. So given that we're here and that we can't turn off the internet, we can't live without it, right? Like I'm not a total Luddite where I'm calling for people to throw their devices away and live in this sort of alternate utopian reality where we can somehow <laughs> totally live off the grid. No, I think there are benefits, there are good things about the digital age and the internet and social media, but there's a ton of bad stuff too. And so rather than have this all or nothing approach, um, we need to be just to have a careful approach and be super mindful. So I think I make the comparison somewhere in the book to the Christian doctors who like go into Ebola stricken countries in Africa. It's like, you're going to put yourself at risk for sure. And in some cases, like Kent Brantley, Nancy Reipal, like they, they got the virus by virtue of being there and trying to be a light in the darkness. And so I think that's a similar posture to what I hope Christians have in the digital space. 
Like we're fully aware of the hazards, but we we're not just going to abandon the digital space to become even darker, even more toxic. And, and to let um, people, especially people who don't know Christ, to just continue spiraling down into um, really dark places by virtue of all the horrible things that happen online. Let's be there. Let's be cautious, but let's be there trying to, to contribute something positive and something illuminating and true rather than perpetuating the falsehoods and the sicknesses online. And the problem is a lot of times these days Christians are, are in the space part of the problem, right? Perpetuating the bad parts, not not being the light of illumination that we need to be. Are you like me, though, with your kids, where you just try to keep them as far away as possible? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think every parent these days, or a lot of parents start out with that, like, okay, we're just not even going to let you touch a phone. We don't even want to give you screen time. We're quickly finding that it's that's probably not realistic as an approach. Um, so I think part of why I wrote, wrote this book too is for my parenting and for my kids and um, knowing that, again, the all or nothing approaches probably aren't going to work for p- parents raising kids in the digital world. I don't know that it's realistic to just withhold all devices from your children, certainly when it comes to a certain age, especially. So given that, how can we cultivate in them these habits where we point them to healthier sources and we say like, you can have, you know, you can have your social media time, you can have your screen time, but just like the fats, oils and sweets category of the, the food pyramid, like, it's a treat, right? It's a, it's not the foundation of your diet. It's not a staple of your diet, but it's, it's something fun to enjoy from time to time. We had gone for a number of years. We, we kept a TV out of our living room, our, our, our typical spaces. Um, but that, isn't quite as big of a deal anymore with how devices have changed viewing. Um, so now your TV travels everywhere with you on YouTube TV or whatever. So then for sports in particular, we got back to cable and my wife has been pretty uncomfortable with that decision. But the way I described it is I would rather sort of expose our kids to some good things as a model so that they're not in an all or nothing dynamic where they feel like, okay, well, my parents were so strict. They didn't, they didn't even let me watch Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs play. They were so, and then they just sort of lose all discernment together. So it seems like what your book, and you keep emphasizing here, is a call to regular spiritual discernment. You, even Twitter makes it onto your pyramid. It just, it just is the you know, last one, <laughs> you know, the very tip there. Is that a good summary? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, like anything with virtue and um, spiritual growth, it's all about ordering our loves, right? Ordering our priorities. And so that's what the wisdom pyramid really is. It's putting these in their proper place. Not that I've arrived at the scientific final solution for where nature needs to be and where whatever beauty needs to be. But um, I think generally, if we put um, our social media time and exposure in that, you know, most occasional place, we're going to be healthier. And of course, we all know that we flipped it and made social media and the internet our foundation. And that's why we're in such a, you know, unfortunate place right now. I wonder why, I mean, this is something I've always admired about you, Brett, you really do embrace travel, creation. I mean, really a lot of the good things of life. I've always appreciated that about you and, and your wife. I wonder why 
there hasn't been more of that, I guess, is it through the through the coronavirus uh, shutdowns? I mean, again, I know there are some concerns about even being outside and around other people, and I just I would have thought it would have driven people to more of that, but it seems the opposite happened. It drove people more into screens. Is that just because of the the fears of outdoors, or was something else happening there? Do you think? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know for us the time outside became more essential than ever for our health and sanity. Uh, And of course, living in Southern California helps because it's beautiful all the time. So in the, especially in the early days of the pandemic, we like, we really prioritized as much time outside as possible, like just going on walks in our neighborhood and, and going to the beach or whatever. Um, Yeah. I don't know why. I mean, it, it does seem like, people spent more time than ever online. Part part of that is by necessity, right? They were doing every activity in life was made to be virtual. Yeah. All the, all the work meetings for people who couldn't go to the office and things like that, that, that part's understandable. It just seems like I would have expected some kind of nature revival or something with that, but just seems like it was more of a, more of a screen. I think there actually was some of that. I, I would, I would love to like see if there's any like, research or data on that but just anecdotally i think the national parks had like crazy records this summer that would be great and i mean we went to a couple national parks on road trips this summer and a lot of people had similar ideas because you couldn't fly anywhere and everything was a road trip and something about nature is it brings ballast in an unsteady world because it's just so much bigger than the problems that you see on twitter on any given moment and it's so much more um yeah, just indifferent to to whatever is causing people to be up in a tizzy on any given moment on social media. Yeah, I was reading somebody recently, I think it was Andrew Wilson, I'll be talking to him uh, for, for this podcast, and he said, my anxiety levels when I'm on screens and thinking about money spike, when I'm around trees and children, they decline. And I thought that's not just therapeutic, that's biblical wisdom i mean part of part of part of how we're supposed to fight anxiety is to look to nature look to how god provides without our without our work provides in all these ways for his creation yeah i mean there's i have a lot of thoughts on that but i think one of the things is like to go back to like things in their rightful place like when we are in creation and really really in it really aware of it and 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 aware of our creatureliness as a part of that we are part of God's creation too. Like it just, we're in our rightful place. And I think that that sensation that you get when you're out for a run on a beautiful day in a beautiful landscape and that, that sense of almost being close to God, like even secular, you know, non-believers, I sometimes, sometimes use that language of like nature's feels like I'm close to God, you know? And I think that's because we're in our proper place. We're not removed from, God's creation, we're in it. And everything about wisdom, and this is a big theme of the book, is about proximity to God, right? If God is wisdom incarnate, if he, you know, is eternal wisdom, then we find wisdom by being proximate to him. That's why his word, his direct speech, his direct revelation to us is the most important source of wisdom. It's the foundation. That's why his church, so his kind of people, his presence among his people in the church is the second most important layer in my wisdom pyramid. And then nature I put in the third place because 
it's his creation. So that there's huge proximity to him by virtue of being in his creation and noticing it and really like paying attention to it. Same thing with the baby, right? Like if you really look at a baby and contemplate a baby in, in the baby's creatureliness as a, as a beautiful handiwork of God, it's totally like illuminating and it, it just, um, yeah, it brings, it can bring wisdom to, to pay attention to the creation that God has made. Which is kind of biographical for you guys because 2020 was also a, an expansion year. Right, right. It was, <laughs> we, we had a baby to look at more than we probably would have had the pandemic. <laughs> not. That was one of the the hidden blessing, blessings of the pandemic happening this year for us is it was like we were we would want to be at home more anyway to, to just dote on Ira, our, our newborn. And, and so we relished that time. Absolutely. Now, Brett, you want churches to be less concerned with being up on the times. Uh, wouldn't that make them irrelevant to today's concerns? Yeah, I mean, this idea goes back to my first book, Hipster Christianity. So there's some overlap here. But um, yeah, I mean, I think part of one of the big problematic dynamics of our digital age in general is an obsession with the now in this present tense orientation where what's trending now, what's the breaking news right now, like is everything. And to the point where we lose sight of history and the past, which is a massive source of wisdom and perspective, we lose sight of the future. Everything's just about the now and the church, when it falls into that orientation, which is easy to do in today's world, can start to think that its relevance is dependent on the extent to which it is speaking to the trending issues right now, whatever the headline is currently. And we've been publishing some articles at TGC with this topic in mind, because I think a lot of pastors really feel this pressure right now to, to be current, current and like speaking to the current events. Um, but I think it's actually like unwise to place more of your weight to that than you do to the eternal truths and the wisdom of ages past. And for Christians, especially, there's so many resources to draw on and to mine the depths of not only in scripture, but in our, our past and, and the, the great thinkers and theologians and believers who have come before us and, um, so, yeah, in general, I, I think my book, I have this bias towards the old over the new and um, the, the time tested over the ephemeral piece of content that's here today and is going to be forgotten tomorrow, which I think is kind of obvious, right? Like you, you will become more wise by filling yourself with time tested things that have, be, have proven to be helpful for many generations of humans versus your diet only consisting of hot takes and Twitter threads that literally we'll forget about next week and never reference again. Um, <laughs> but sadly, a lot of our diets are mostly on those ephemeral, untested sources right now. Well, the church part of the pyramid is probably the most difficult right now to be able to execute. Yeah. I was just invited. Now you're 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 in the middle of starting a new church. Um, I was invited to come speak to a church about the post-COVID reality, and I thought, "Wow, post-COVID, 
that must be nice <laughs> someday. <laughs> just don't ask me when. <laughs> I was invited to speak somewhere in six months. No, like eight months. And they said, well, don't buy your plane tickets because you never know. So, oh, man. Oh, goodness. Man. Anyway, but I, it feels like, Brett, I'm hoping people, they get the wisdom pyramid, they apply it, they take it seriously because – COVID has forced all of us to essentially, we've, we've been forced to sign out of our accounts. You know, like that Facebook force, everybody panicking. Wait a minute. I haven't had to log out of Facebook in three years. What happened all of a sudden? Yeah, you've been forced to log out. Now you have to decide, are you logging back in to basically every aspect of your life? And that's a major challenge for churches. Shout out if my uh, 91-year-old grandmother is listening to this. I was speaking to her the other day. And I think she expressed, I don't know if she noticed, but I'm, I think she expressed some of the ambivalence people feel about church. We started talking about how hard this has been, a book that I'm working on called Rediscover Church, um, coming out from Crossway, and how we want to get people back into church. And she said, absolutely. I, I don't think we knew how much we missed our church friends. And then by the end of the conversation, she said, I'm going to have a hard time going back to church. And I said, why? And she said, well, I've been watching this pastor from a different you know, city, and I like him so much. I'm just not sure I want to go back. And I thought, yep, that's going to be it for everybody. Um, and, and if you view church primarily from those terms of essentially – what you get, what you sort of download from the pastor, then the gig is up because your pastor isn't as good as Tim Keller was in 1994. And you can get all of Tim Keller's 1994 sermons if you want. Uh, so that's why I think your book, Uncomfortable, is even more relevant now because it's a call. I mean, I, I think I had imbibed so much of that, Brett, and it's so much what we're trying to do at the Gospel Coalition that when I worked on We Discovered Church, it was all about, like, why do we go back to church? Because it makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> the rituals that it forces us into, the relationships that it forces us into are, by, are God's very design for us to grow to be like Him, to grow in love. So what do you do? What, what are we supposed to do with that part of the wisdom pyramid right now when it's not really a, an option for a lot of people right now, unfortunately, to be able to experience that kind of wisdom within community that we ought to have. It is a tricky thing. And I mean, I'm hopeful that the pandemic ends sooner than eight months. That would be depressing if we're still <laughs> still apart from our churches okay. in eight months. But I mean, I, I think that, yeah, I mean, the reality is church is going to be important and it's, there may be a season right now where it's harder than, than normally is to, to make it a foundation of your diet, so to speak. But when, and whenever this ends and it will end, like we do, we will have to re-decide to choose church again to like, like you're saying, it's, it is going to be this, like we've all signed out. Now we have to choose to sign back in. And so I think it's going to be a big task for us, um, as Christian leaders and pastors and thinkers to really articulate again, <laughs> the, it was already a tough case to make before the pandemic, right? right? Um, which is why I wrote Uncomfortable um, a couple of years ago, but it's going to be even harder to make the case 
in a new way um, now that people have gotten used to, yeah, watching Tim Keller instead <laughs> and just Googling their preferred content of spiritual input. But I mean, like I talk about in, in Uncomfortable and in the chapter on the church in, in the Wisdom Pyramid, church is not just about content and it's, it's really about community and it's about um, wisdom is not easily gained in an isolated space, right? Like you don't, um, do not be wise in your own eyes, it says the Proverbs, right? Like wisdom is not just something you look within yourself and just kind of determine your own standards and follow your own truth. It's necessarily communal for, for the benefit of truth, right? You find truth more efficiently when there's others around you who can be iron sharpening iron, who can be mirrors to you, who can point out your blind spots. And that's God's gift to us in the church. It's the gift of community that can collectively understand the truth of scripture more. So I talk about how church is an interpretive community of scripture. So I try to connect each layer of the pyramid to each other and especially each layer to scripture because it all goes back to God's word as the ultimate trump card, if you will, for, for truth and wisdom. But the church is a critical place to not just apply scripture in a convenient way, you know, pick and choose, make it fit your preferred partisan perspective as one example, which we see all the time in today's world, picking and choosing scripture to defend whatever political view you want. But in, in, in church and in, especially in a healthy kind of diverse church, you have a better chance to get, get at the truth of it um, in community. So the community of church is so, so important. And I mean, and there's other reasons too, right? Like you to be, um, to be able to know and be known is so essential for our wisdom to be able to grow over time in one place rather than going from one thing to another. Again, that goes back to the idea of time as a, as a key element of wisdom in an age of schizophrenia where we're going from one thing to the other and this podcast to this you know, YouTube video to this piece of content, it, all of that frenetic input, you know, maybe there's good things that we're getting in fits and starts, but um, we truly become wise when we commit ourselves to something over a long period of time and let ourselves grow and kind of marinate in a healthy community. Um, so that's another benefit of church. Well, one last question on the wisdom pyramid before we jump into the final three, Brett. So last question, tell me about someone who is wise and what made that person that way? Well, I dedicate the book to my dad. And so he's the one that comes to mind immediately. And I reference him a few times in the book. I mean, I think part of it is when, as I was writing it, I was thinking like, he's really committed to each of these layers. And I grew up seeing him committed to that scripture. You know, I, I, I talk about how like one of my big memories, one of my earliest memories as a kid was seeing my dad's Bible just sitting around the house. And it was this behemoth Bible with like papers and leaflets, you know, coming out of it and totally marked up with multiple colors of highlighters. Um, so I, I saw that that was a huge part of him and, and a constant source of that was feeding him and church as well. He was so active in church growing up. Um, nature, you know, he would, he prioritized taking us um, to national parks and going on camping trips and being outside. I think that 
wisdom is something that models are so crucial for, right? Like, you know what wisdom looks like when you see people who are wise. And um, the last chapter of the wisdom pyramid is called what wisdom looks like. And I go through a few like attributes of the people who I think of when I think of wisdom and, and what they share and the attributes they share, in addition to kind of following the wisdom pyramid as the sources that feed them. I think wise people are humble. They're, they're really teachable. They're not like arrogant and like I've arrived at, you know, everything I need to know and I'm done. They're lifelong learners. And that's another thing about my dad. Um, he's constantly reading books and just always wanting to learn more. And um, he's 70 something, 74, I think, or 73. And he's still like just so interested in learning. And if you think of the wisest people in your life right now, those who are listening to this, like I, you'd probably find that they are that way. They're, they may be brilliant, you know, with multiple PhDs and uh, a ton of knowledge, but they're not satisfied with having arrived at the apex of wisdom. They're wanting to learn and grow and listen and to be teachable. And we need that. I mean, it's, we need that quality so much in today's quick to speak, slow to listen world. They are, by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, deeper into the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're being sanctified. That's what it's all about. We've been talking with Brett McCracken, his new book, The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. almost misread that, Brett, a couple times of Feeling Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. That would have been a very different book and probably not published by Crossway, thankfully. Right. Nope. No. <laughs> Don't write that book in the future. Right. There probably is that title out there somewhere. I'm I'm certain. Right. It's a very new age idea. Yeah. <laughs> final your Massage your soul to truth. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, uh, final three here with Brett McCracken. Brett, what was the last great book you read? Um, okay. I'm trying to read. I'm trying to follow my own advice in the Wisdom Pyramid and reading old books more yeah. than I read new books. Mm-hmm. So um, I just read um, Blaise Pascal's um, Pensies. Um, just his Christian reflections. And it, it just was one of those, like, how did I not read this before? I, li- I underlined almost every line. And with some of those older, like Christian wisdom books, it's like scattered thoughts, like almost like he like was writing his notebooks, little one liners, kind of tweets of his day. True. And, um, it's true. And, <laughs> and so it's very like scattered at times, but it's so full of wisdom. So that was a great one. Oh yeah, if you're if you're all about quotes, I mean, you can't you can't do better than that with Pascal. I mean, it's it's, it's set up there like the proverbs, exactly like you're saying. Like the the proverbs are so uh, tweetable as well. Uh, Brett, what brings you calm in the storm? What comes to mind is just my wife and my kids, and um, yeah, I I think just being being at peace and being contented with. The, the gift of family and the, the nuclear family unit. Um, I think the pandemic has really heightened our awareness of what a gift that can be a frustration at times too, when we're sequestered together <laughs> in small spaces for long periods of time, but um, also just an incredible gift for studying and reminding you like, this is my first frontier of mission and life. And instead of being, so concerned with everything out there that's buzzing around on social media. Like how am I discipling my 
two boys. How am I caring for my wife? So that's been really helpful for me in in the midst of the craziness of this year is just to like narrow my scope a bit and just like bring it all down to that level of like home and family and uh, making sure that we're doing okay. And great that you had an example of that when you were growing up yourself. Last question, Brett, where do you find good news today? The thing that comes to mind is maybe a bit more abstract, but beautiful things like good music. Like it's not, it's not like a, a good news headline in terms of a narrative, but it's to me the, the fact that like beauty is still being created um, in the world is, is a form of good news. And um, so that's as someone who cares about the arts a lot and gets to highlight it in my job at TGC and, and point other people to, to these, um, these almost like lighthouses of, of light and hope in the darkness. That's what beauty is. I mean, we didn't talk about the beauty part of the pyramid in this interview, but one thing that I think about with beauty is in terms of a metaphor for beauty is it's almost like a, a, a postcard from the new creation. It's, you know, beauty that we experience in this life at its best is a glimpse of the, the eternal perpetual capital B beauty that we're going to be experiencing in the presence of God and the new creation. And, and um, so any glimpse I can get of that, uh, in this life is a, a really good news sort of thing. And you have been gifted by God to be our docent. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love being a docent of that. It's that's <laughs> keeps me happy and upbeat. Well, we're grateful for it, Brett. Uh, keep those Spotify lists coming. Uh, my guest on Gospel Bound this week has been Brett McCracken, author of The Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. Check it out from Crossway. Brett, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Colin. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Gospel Bound. For more information, including past episodes, transcripts, and to sign up for my newsletter, go to tgc.org slash gospelbound. If you like what you've heard, you may also like my new book written with Sarah Zalstra called Gospel Bound, Living with Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age. You can find it wherever books are sold.